John chapter 5, I'm going to read verses 1 through 9, um, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll get to work looking at this uh, beautiful story. So why don't you follow along with me? It's going to be up on the screen. Uh, if you guys don't have a Bible, I think there's some ushers. If they, if they want, they can get you a Bible. If not, if you need one, go ahead and raise your hand. I'm sure they'll get you one. All right, here we go. John chapter 5, verse 1 says this. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a great or a gate in a pool in Aramaic called Bethsaida, which was a five roofed colonnades, and in those lay multitudes of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for thirty eight years. When Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had already been there for a very really long time. And then he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man then answered, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water stirred. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. And then Jesus said to him, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. And this is the word of the Lord. God, right now we ask you that you would just open our hearts to all that you have for us. God, let this passage inform uh, and transform and reshape our understanding of how we see you. God, we don't come to you bringing our own revelation, our own demands. We, we bring even our objections to you. We just say, Lord, we lay them down before you, the king of all. God, reshape us, remake us according to your likeness and your purpose. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I want to start with a question, and the question is this, is like for you to think about what are your greatest needs, struggles, and or areas of brokenness in your life? Just pause and take a quick little analysis of your life. What are the greatest areas of needs, struggle, brokenness in your life right now? The things that you look at, you're like, ah, oh, this is out of whack, this is broken, this is messed up. This area of brokenness is actually affecting these other areas that I value in my life. Let's say a relationship, let's say, let's say you have a temper, really, really bad temper. Well, that temper that controls you from time to time is actually destroying your marriage. You're bound to this thing. It's like a sickness, it's like an illness, it's like a malady upon your life, but as much as you wish to separate yourself from it, it's just a part of you. And, and But you recognize that. Maybe there are moments of self-awareness where you're like, ah, I wish that was different. Or I wish that was changed. And your spouse is like, please change that because I can't live with you with that anymore. And yet, there it is. There it is. Um, I remember years ago talking with a friend of mine, and they had a child that was born with um, some very, very severe physical uh, handicaps. And uh, I'll never forget what she said to me. She said, she said, um, her and her husband had gone through some extensive counseling and self-discovery and realizing that there were areas of brokenness and sinfulness and proclivities that they needed to bring before Jesus and find healing and whatnot. And she was, she, she made this point. Um, she said, you know, my husband and I have this external appearance where everything in our life is together they, they look very successful on the outside everything looks together in their life they, they're literally in instagram perfect moments of their life but she said my child wears 
his maladies externally. Very apparent, very obvious. No one questions it. No one uh, doubts the brokenness of my son's body. But everybody is fooled into believing that we have it all together. Speaking about her and her husband. Because we look like we have it all together. But no one sees that our brokenness, our malady, our chaos is internal inside of our hearts. And it comes out in places and spaces where nobody else sees. And it just is as broken as my son. I thought, man, that's, that's, a, that's a great way to think about life. Because I think all of us can relate to that. Because we recognize that there are some in our culture, and we can very easily identify brokenness when it's right there. But oftentimes, we don't identify it in our own lives. But nonetheless, it is still there. And what we see here in this story is that we find this guy being confronted by Jesus to bring about healing to his areas of brokenness. So I want to finish with this little question for you, and then we're going to move on to the text. What are those areas of greatest needs and struggle and brokenness in your life? And then lastly, if Jesus were to come to you today and say, like he said to this man, do you want to be healed? What would be your response? Like, like what would you say? Yes, Lord. Take it away. Yes, God, take away my anxiety, my anger, my pathological need to lie. Take it away. Take away my sense to where I'm constantly focusing on all of other people's brokenness. God, take away my criticalness. Take away my cynicism. Yes, I want to be healed. And I I think this is a challenging question for us because for many of us, we live in such a state over a prolonged period of time where that malady becomes our identity. And we become one with it. It's like the thought of living without that thing is almost reprehensible. It's like, no, I don't. That becomes like our, our crutch, our identity. Oh, yeah, they're the one with blah, 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 whatever. You fill in the blank. But what if Jesus says, I'm going to take it away? It's a malady. It's a pathology. It's a brokenness. It's, it's a... It's something that I've come to bring healing to and in its place make wholeness about. Like, that's what I've come to do. And so I want to think about this guy's life, and I want to really just kind of break this down into two main characters. There's three main characters in the story here, but two that we'll really focus on. The third is the large group of people, which is kind of, I guess, is the body of characters uh, that we won't necessarily focus on. But I want, really want to just look at the two. And the First one is the one that's in need, which is this guy that we just uh, were introduced to. And then secondly, we'll obviously take a look at Jesus, the one who heals. So first of all, I want to take a look at the one that's in need. And as I was reading through this originally, um, three things really struck me with regard to this guy's life. That he was he was definitely bound. He was held captive. He was a slave to. It's like what Paul the Apostle would say. We are all slaves to sin. I don't know how you think about that, but really that's biblical language of saying we can't break the cycle. I mean, one thing that is, is profound to me, I just finished reading a book. It's called Conquers. It's about Portuguese conquest. <laughs> kind of nerdy, I know, but that's what I do. And, um, and it really struck me, the cycles of violence back in the day. And it was all kind of like religious, like, hey, we're for King Jesus, and you guys are King Muhammad, and your other people are King Brahma, and we're going to kill you. And just these cycles of constant, ongoing, unbroken violence. And here we are. You know, 300 years later, 
in the same cycles of violence. Far more technologically advanced, more money than ever before, more ability to create stability, and we still don't have it. So the question is like, why? Paul's answer would be, we're slaves to sin. More movements to fight injustice than ever before. Yet those very movements are oftentimes motivated by the same pernicious tools of violence and cycles of destruction as have always happened before. That's what took place in the French Revolution. It promised liberty. And yet the very people fighting for liberty became the oppressors. Why? How has it happened? Slaves of sin. And so we, we have a condition about humanity in which all of us as human beings are slaves to sin. Um, I love how the Orthodox Church kind of thinks about this. It's, it's really all human beings have a sickness that we've all inherited from our father and mother, Adam and Eve. And the sickness takes us and steals from us, robs from us, keeps us at arm's length from life and flourishing and fullness and love and kindness and generosity and compassion and, and all of these things that we know are good because we've tasted them before. We've sampled them. We don't always live there at the table feasting upon them. But every once in a while we taste them, we're like, ah, it's really good. And every once in a while we're, we're capable of producing them. But for the most part, we're just constantly in a state of brokenness, pathological brokenness. And yet what I see with this guy, he is bound to three things. Number one, he's bound. I'll go through these real quickly and I'll move on. Number one, he's bound to this broken body. That seems pretty obvious that he is part of this company of what's described simply in the text as invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. He's one of these people. He's, we're told another detail about him that he lived in this condition for 38 years. Just imagine that, 38 years. What have you done for 38 years? Some of you are not even close to 38 years old, but imagine having something that you're aware of for 38 years in your life. Something that's so externally aware, something that you are constantly aware of at least, so much so that it just is a constant, continual hindrance for you. Can you imagine living in a state like that where you just become aware of this so much so that it's just, it's just a part of your life, part of who you are, part of your reality? This, who this guy was, he lived in this broken body. He was bound to this broken body. He couldn't just snap his fingers and wish his uh, ills away. He couldn't just pull himself up by his own bootstraps. He couldn't just somehow, uh, by the thought of, you know, good vibes, like advance his career. He, he did not have access to any of that. So where's he at? And I'm going to show you a little uh, photo. So I meant to show you this earlier. So just kind of get a little bit of an idea as to where this is all at. This is, again, um, in, in Jerusalem, there's like a scale model of all this. And so this is kind of what's believed to be the Pool of Bethesda. So you see the Sheep Gate up there. Jesus would have come out of that Sheep Gate probably somewhere right around there. He would have come into this Pool of Bethesda. And a lot of scholars believe that there would have been hundreds of people there at this pool. And there was a this myth that was kind of built around this, which we'll, I'll get into in a second here. But all of these people were there just broken. They just begged. They looked for uh, handouts. Uh, that was kind of the welfare system. Uh, Judaism kind of baked into its own uh, fabric, a way of protecting and taking care of people. But even that was a system that was prone towards brokenness. And so uh, what ended up happening, happening were a lot of these people just kind of found various places like this. And this kind of became like the, the social hangout zone. So you'd imagine this was not where you would go on a Sunday stroll and just kind of take your family down there. It was filled with brokenness. It'd be kind of like taking your family down to 
the stream. That's San Luis Creek. That's just south South Aguera. You know what I'm talking about, right? There's a homeless encampments. I don't know if you've ever been there. Uh, I've been there several times. And there's dozens upon dozens upon dozens of tents and drug paraphernalia and just filth. And people live out there. Human beings made in the image of God live out there. It's, it's, it's a place that, for the most part, most San Luis Obispo people don't even know exists. Because part of it is, you know, it's not part of the normal warp and wolf, but also part of it is just kind of like no one wants to know it exists. It's kind of like the dirty part of culture and society. Like we don't we don't want to know about these things, but they exist in the last. And in those spaces and in those places, God comes and descends and does something uh, unexpected. So what we see with this particular story is that this would have been that particular area. So back to the story, we see secondly, not only did he have a broken body, which he was bound to, but he was also bound to a failed myth. And this really kind of struck me because in this particular passage, you can go back to the other slide, in the passage right there in verse 7, it describes uh, this man who's sitting there by this pool waiting for the waters to be agitated and then he would descend. And there was a myth that was built around that. Like, if you can get to the waters first, and you'd be healed. So there was some belief system that was fabricated around this pool that said, you know, when the waters move, no one really knows exactly what this is all about. Every scholar kind of has their own particular Spanish idea about this. But the point of the matter is it seems as if it was a myth that was believed by those that were living there, or at least wanting to believe to be believed by those that were living around there, that if you can get into the water at a particular time, then you would be healed. And yet, obviously, it never worked for him, even though over and over and over again, he was believing that that myth would work for him. And this really kind of struck me because this is the culture that we live in today. We live in a culture that is literally framed around certain storylines or myths. That's what I mean by a myth, a storyline, a way in which we define our lives. And I was thinking about this in our culture today, especially as Americans. There's a lot of different myths that you can think about that Americans believe, but there's two that I'll just kind of point out to that I think might be helpful for us to even kind of think in terms of this. But a myth is something that says, if, if I enter into whatever and wherever the story is taking me, then I can be whole. Then I'll be a whole human being. Then I'll have a better life. Then I'll enter into some form of functional heaven, and I'll avoid a functional hell or place of disaster or destruction or brokenness. If I can enter into the fullness of this cycle or this myth or story, then I will fully, truly live. And that's exactly where this guy was, that if I can get into the water, then I'll be whole, and I won't be sick anymore. It wasn't working for him, just like these myths never ultimately finally work for us. The two myths that I'm thinking about, and there's a lot of them, number one, I would say the myth of the pursuit of happiness. It's a big one. America. America has kind of framed around this. We have even kind of baked into the very fabric of our natures, like the the pursuit of happiness. In a lot of ways, this is good because, again, America was founded as a nation that was identifying the fact that prior to American founding, you had kind of um, a king that was uh, setting forth certain demands. And everybody within that culture was either, you know, royalty, you were nobility, you were an elite status, or you were kind of a commoner, like a slave labor to that king. And so your happiness was not a thing. The king's happiness was a thing. Your job was to help the king to get happy. And I think the idea was that kind of trickled down. As long as the king's happy and everyone else is going to kind of be happy, you're going to get food on your plate and everything will be fine. But your happiness is, no one cares about your happiness. You're part of a system, a hub, a battery that's just kind of functioning, working, providing power uh, and, and, and uh, material substance to those that are on the top. Um, so when America was founded, it was kind of this idea of saying, we're free. 
we have inalienable rights given to us by our Creator. We have something unique as human beings that bear the image of God. Now, again, not everyone that part was part of this whole thing were Christians. Many of them were deists. They believe in some sort of God figure out there, beyond there. But uh, some of them were Christians. It was definitely based upon some sort of a Judeo-Christian value system that said that actually all human beings bear the image of God. Therefore, there's valuable elements to their life as just simply being able to breathe and have brain functionality and uh, awareness and living on this planet. Therefore, whether unborn all the way to the grave, like just prior to the grave, like there's value in all these human beings. And all of them, therefore, have this sense to pursue happiness. And this kind of leads, I I would say, and has led to sort of a a cult of like being self-made. And so we've seen that within America, especially. It's like, you know, there's no shortage of self-help videos or the self-help section of, you know, Barnes & Noble is massive. Just go check it out. It's like massive. And this is the idea, the cult of being self-made, that you can do it on your own, self-individualized. This also has kind of, I think, led to like a celebrity status, because that's what a celebrity is, is someone that has been self-made. They've promoted themselves. They've ascended to this godlike status. That's also then led to kind of more darker elements of this, of like narcissism. Like you want to know where narcissism comes from? All of this comes from this this centralized myth that you have the right to pursue happiness even if it's at other people's expense. And there's distortions of this. I think there's there's uh, there's ways that this can be good and healthy and and as a, a clean break from what America was formed against or framed against. But at the end of the day, these are myths that we live in. And so this kind of leads to this more centralized idea of, of hyper-individualism, especially in our culture. Like, I don't even need to go to church. I don't even really need a small group. I don't really need accountability. I don't need other people in my life because I'm in control. I have the demands of having my own happiness at my own fingertips, at my own choices. And you can see how easily this gets distorted and has been distorted within our culture. But it's part of the myth that we live by. And against this idea that if you get it, if you obtain it, you enter into this sort of this functional heaven, paradise. And if you don't have it, you're in this functional hell. Like you're working for that boss that's a horrible human being and he's not letting you have freedom. He's not letting you do what you want to do. Um, and again, some of that is true. That could happen. But the point of the matter is this is a myth that we oftentimes live by within our culture. Another one that I think about is this another myth of youthfulness. Um, this is huge in our culture. I was reading um, on an article about this earlier, and it was talking about how uh, this youth-oriented culture, we take it as a given. Like, it's just a norm. Everyone is all about youthfulness and looking good, looking your best, feeling your best, and all that. That's great. Again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not anti-health and wellness or, you know, youthfulness and feeling good and whatnot. All that's wonderful. But the point that I would make is that this is different. We just take it for granted. That's the way it's always been. I mean, you go back to, like, ancient Egypt, and everyone's like, all about youthfulness. Actually... Throughout history, do you, do you know that almost every culture and society has always had a high esteem and a value system for the elderly? Did you know that? In other words, the older you get, the more of sage you become, the more valuable you become in that culture and that society because you have experience, you have wisdom, you have knowledge, you have something that other people don't. And our culture today, that's not how we think about it. In fact, we know this because the older you get, if you can somehow maintain olderness status and look young, then you've obtained it. What's that all about? It's all about this idea of the myth of youthfulness. 
And we live into this. We, it's the air we breathe, especially, again, living in California. It's just the way that we live our lives, and we just assume that this is how things have always been. The point that I'd make is that just because we obtain it, does that mean that it gives us the life that we're longing for? Or is it, again, just like the myth of the stirring of the waters, something that promises much but will always fail to deliver? So check this out. We'll go to the third one. Is he was bound to a broken body, bound to a failed myth. He was also bound to a sinful heart. We get this in verse 14 where later Jesus finds him in the temple and says to him, See, you are well. Sin no more so that something worse may not happen to you. And again, again, scholars kind of describe like all sorts of uh, uh, differences as to exactly what Jesus meant by this. But the point seems to be pretty clear that whatever Jesus is saying to him is that sin, this proclivity to turn away from God and turn towards whatever it is, desires that you have or hold on or uh, invest hope in another alternative myth or story, all of that will fail you at some point. And Jesus' whole point seems to be that trust in me, the one who's given this to you, this healing, so that something worse does not happen to you. Which, again, it would seem as if what Jesus is suggesting is that there is a path that will continue to lead towards death and destruction. What he would later describe as, as hell or brokenness, or ultimately what he describes as a lake of fire, a place of just suffering and torment and brokenness that's filled with regrets and destruction, whereby we have missed entirely the hope and the mark that God has set for us of life and goodness and beauty. The very thing that Jesus delivers to this guy. So, so move on from him. I want to now fix our eyes upon uh, Jesus, the one who heals and uh, the first thing I want for us to think about in verse 6, it says, Then Jesus saw him lying there, and he knew that he had already been there for a long time. Um, three words I want for you to think about. Number one, it's implied, but it says Jesus came. Jesus came into that particular area. Why did he come in that? Uh, there's no description of his disciples even being with him, so perhaps Jesus is by himself. But regardless, Jesus came into that area. And then secondly, check it out. Jesus saw, he observed, he was aware and then lastly, we see that it says, and Jesus knew. Jesus knew about this guy's condition for as long as he's been that condition. And I want you to pause and think about this. Because I know it's really common, especially in our day and age today, to just assume that God does not see. God does not know. But this story tells us an alternate narrative that actually God does see. God does know. And I think you can add God does care. He steps in to these spaces and these places in our lives of brokenness in order to bring about healing and wholeness. So three things, again, real quick, I just want to observe with regard to Jesus. Number one, I see that Jesus goes into these most unexpected places. Uh, so what we see here is that this is God's initiative, God's prerogative, totally unsolicited, and honestly, totally uninvited. Who invited Jesus to the party? Oh, no one. Why is he here? Because he loves some guy that's going to be saved. Now, again, this raises lots, lots of other questions because there are dozens, if not hundreds of others like this guy that did not get healed. Why this guy? I don't know. I have no clue. But whatever the case is, Jesus heals this guy. Uninvited, unsolicited, on his own prerogative and on his own initiative. He goes into these unexpected places Secondly, we see that he chose the most unexpected people. Why did he choose this guy? Of anybody else. Uh, Jesus would later describe to the religious leaders that were really irate and frustrated with him for healing this guy on Sabbath. He says, look, it's 
the sick that need a physician. God didn't come to necessarily, I mean, God came for everybody, but there are those living in this life that we look at the state and the condition of our life, we're like, I don't need help. I can figure this out on my own. I can pull myself up by my own bootstrap. Again, all that simply says that we are living according to the same narrative that's, that all of many other Americans live according to. I can, the, the cult of, you know, self-accomplishment. I can do this. But what Jesus is really pointing out is that once you get to this place of, I'm at the end of myself, I don't know where else to go. I don't know how else to fix this. I don't know how else to interject any more energy. And I don't even have any more energy even to contribute to this. It's at that place that Jesus does his most beautiful work. And then lastly, we see that Jesus heals in the most unexpected ways. And check this out. So what, did you notice that when Jesus asked the guy, like, do you want to be healed? Do you see his response? He says, no, there's no one to put me in the water. Jesus is asking him an entirely different question. He's answering the question based upon the narrative that he's been trained to think about. And what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of God, what it means to enter into salvation is to align your responses to the questions that Jesus is asking. Not somehow try to shoehorn our expectations into what God is up to. It's coming to God and say, God, I have no agenda. I have no uh, demands. I, I want all that you have. Whatever your word says, whatever it says, however it describes, I will align my life up with all that you are. Because you are king, I'm not. Jesus heals in these most unexpected ways. Jesus did not use the pool. <laughs> That's not just the point I just want to make. He did not use the pool. This guy's like, the pool, the pool, it's going to help me, it's going to save me, but I can't get in there. If somebody just threw me in there, then I'm going to be healed. Jesus is like, okay, stand up, pick up your bed, and walk. He completely circumvents the very means and methods that this guy's expecting Jesus to use, or that he had spent 38 years expecting to give him the very thing that he had longed for. Jesus comes in in an instant and says, be healed. Receive all that I've come to give you. And in summary, I want to finish with this thought. The way I started. Do you want to be healed? Those areas in your life that you're bound by anger, selfishness, which is, we call it today, narcissism, pride, arrogance, laziness, greed, racism, lust, awfulness, Heterosexual, homosexual, all of them, all of them. Do you want to be free? Anxiety, self-pity, these things that oftentimes are like a vortex and suck us into them. We can't get unstuck. Jesus comes and says, do you want to be healed? I'll heal you. Trust me. I want to be careful to say, this is not a promise that every single thing and malady you have going on in your life is instantaneously just going to somehow be gone. There's some things that come through God giving us strength to walk along obedience in that same direction. There's sometimes God can just heal us in an instant, and he will do that. And there's occasions where he does that. But the bottom line question is, do you want to be healed? Do you expect God to make you new? Do you trust him with your life? 